Good morning, church. As Royden said, our Bible reading this morning is from Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is the word of the Lord. Won't you join me in a word of prayer before we come to that text? Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you that you speak to us. We're so grateful that your fullest disclosure comes in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, once again, we come with nothing. Uh, We come with empty hands. We come with hearts that have perhaps been hardened over the week. We ask that you would soften our hearts. We ask that you would fill them with your love. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see you in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of your spirit. Father, please don't let us leave here as we entered. Please meet with us and change us for your glory. Amen. In AD 48, the Apostle Paul sat down to write a very angry letter It's a letter that inspired the Protestant Reformation, and the Reformation changed the whole world. It's a letter that continues to reform the church today. We know it as the letter to the Galatians. To understand the letter and what it says to us today, we need to understand a bit about the geography and the history of that time. So Paul writes from Syrian Antioch. Hopefully you've got a graphic there to help you. He's writing from there. Syrian Antioch, on that eastern edge of the Mediterranean. Uh, A year earlier, in AD 47, he and Barnabas had been commissioned by the church in Antioch to go on what we know as Paul's first missionary journey, and that is mapped out for us there. Paul and Barnabas journeyed around the Mediterranean sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. When in any particular town... A group of people responded to that gospel. The apostles would gather them together, and that gathering would be the beginnings of the church, of a church, of a local church. Isn't it a miracle of God that that process has continued and continued and continued across the generations until that same gospel arrived here in Midrand, and this morning we are sending it out to President Park? Isn't that a wonderful thing? that the Lord has done and continues to do. As they went around the Mediterranean, Paul and Barnabas, they passed through a number of towns south of 
the Roman province of Galatia in what we know as Turkey. So we're talking about this area here. Towns like Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, they're on the map, just over there. They preached the gospel and they founded churches. And then they returned back to Antioch in early AD 48. You can read the historic record of what I've just described and what's on the map in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And I encourage you to do that this week because it's all laid out there for us. So Paul is writing from Antioch in Syria after planting all of those churches in Turkey the year before. He writes, he writes his letter, his angry letter, because after his visit, some Jewish Christian counter-missionaries from down in Jerusalem, the map is still there. So they come up from Jerusalem and they head to the churches that Paul planted and they went in that direction. They did their own tour correcting his message. They said to the non-Jews in those churches, it is wonderful. It's just wonderful that you have decided to follow the Jewish Messiah. Just bear in mind that he's the Jewish Messiah. So if you want the salvation that he offers to his covenant community, then you also need to become part of that covenant community. And to become part of that community, you need to be circumcised and place yourself under the Mosaic law, since it's the Mosaic covenant after all. He's a Jewish savior, and this is what it means to be a Jew. So this is what it means to be saved. You can imagine, this made Paul mad. You can almost hear the anger in his voice as you read through the letter. He breaks every rule of common courtesy in his day. He breaks every ancient letter writing protocol. He dives straight into the issue. He dispenses with all of the formalities and the pleasantries. He goes straight for the jugular. He doesn't even bother thanking God for the Galatians, which is something he does in just about every other letter that he writes. He's not thankful. He's outraged. He's vexed. He's flat out mad. Why? Look at verse 6. I am astonished. I mean, that's a pretty lame English word. I think it's a little bit more than that. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Paul is outraged because the Galatians have turned to a different gospel and they've deserted the one who called them. And they've done both so quickly, within a year. We want to understand his frustration with the Galatians so that we can learn from it. And we want to do that under three headings. The gospel, the counterfeit, and the curse. The gospel, the counterfeit, and the curse. So firstly, the gospel. If the problem is that the Galatians are turning away from the gospel, well then the important question is, what is the gospel? The only way to avoid a counterfeit is to know the real thing and to know it well. If you had to explain the gospel to a five-year-old, and I know that some of you that's something that some of you have to do. What would you say? Have you thought about it? If you can't explain it to a five-year-old, there's a good chance you don't really understand it. Paul gives the Galatians a very helpful summary of this gospel in his opening prayer. It's verses 3 and 4. We're going to camp there, so keep your eye on those verses. Let me read them for us again. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The first word in that prayer is grace. And that's fitting because the whole prayer describes a movement from God to man, from God to man. God comes to us for our deliverance and for his glory. That's what grace is. Deliverance is a movement from God to man, not from man to God. That's the grammar of the gospel. Grammar, as you know, is about appropriate word order. The grammar of the gospel is about the appropriate order of action or initiative. It's God who acts and moves and initiates for our deliverance. To suggest that we act and move towards him is to reverse the grammar of the gospel. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 6 that God called us in the grace of Christ. It's a gift. It's a movement of God towards us in Christ. So that's the big picture. Let's look at some of the particulars. In the first century, a gospel was an important political announcement. So EWN breaking news, but of a political nature. Something like the birth of a new Caesar would have been a gospel. Uh, the outcome of an important imperial battle, that would have been a gospel. So what is the gospel, the breaking News, the breaking news of a political nature. What is the gospel that Paul brings to the Galatian churches? We see it in verse 3. Jesus is given the title. Notice it's a title, not a surname. He's given the title Christ. That means Jesus is God's king. That's about as political as it gets. If God has anointed a king, it means that all other authorities are subject to that king because he's God's king. It doesn't get more political than that. It doesn't get more threatening for the existing authorities than that. That's the announcement that Paul took to the Galatian churches. Jesus is king. Jesus is God's king. But there's more to it. Verse 4. This king, you can read along there with me, this king gave himself for our sins in order to deliver us from this present evil age. This is a king who gives himself for his people. And he doesn't only give himself for his people, he gives himself for their rebellion against him. And he does it to deliver them from the prison, the bondage of this evil world. The bondage of their own rebellion. A world in which Satan rules over the sin that leads to death. Jesus came to overrule all authority. He came to dethrone that Satan, that tyrant, and all those in his service. And this rescue, this great rescue, was planned by the Father. And in the end, it will bring him eternal glory. That's the gospel. 
The king has come to rescue his people. He rescues them from sin. He rescues them for the glory of God. Rescued from sin, rescued by the king, rescued for his glory. That's the gospel. And as Paul says, there's only one. As Paul says emphatically, there is only one. Look there in verse 6. And uh, you can read along with me. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. Do you see there? He rules out any alternative. There is no other gospel. There's only one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. If there is only one true and original gospel, and Paul is emphatic on this point, what does the distorted knockoff look like? You know, Adidas with four stripes. Or Oakley, spelt without the E. Reebok, spelt with a C. What does the counterfeit look like? That brings us to the counterfeit. The counterfeit being sold in the Galatian churches looked very much like the original. It practically was the original with one small addition. Salvation comes through the Messiah and circumcision into the Mosaic Covenant. And that's reasonable enough, isn't it? He's the Jewish Messiah. It makes sense. But Paul is not a polite postmodern who wants to give all positions a hearing. Who treats all paths as equally legitimate roads to the top of the hill. He's in no mood to compromise. There is only one gospel. Only one. And to turn away from it is to turn away from the one who calls us. The one who proclaims this gospel. To turn away from the one gospel is to turn away from God himself. The nature of the counterfeit that Paul faced was to add to Jesus as if he wasn't enough. As if the cross wasn't enough. It's no wonder Paul's blood is boiling to say that the cross of Christ is not enough. That's the counterfeit in his day. What does it look like in our day? To recognize the counterfeit gospels of our time, we have to go back to grammar school. There are four elements to the gospel. As Paul has just described it in the prayer, verses 3 to 5, we're camping there, so do keep your eyes on those verses. Four elements to the gospel there. One verb, three prepositions. Okay? The one verb. We are saved. We are saved. There's our verb. We are saved from. We are saved by. We are saved for our three prepositions. We are saved from, by, and for. You mess with any of those elements and what you have is a counterfeit gospel. So let's start with the verb. What does God do? God saves. He rescues. He delivers. Those verbs carry ominous overtones, don't they? They carry a dark edge. They suggest that there is some threat, some 
dangerous situation that we need to be removed from. We have to face the fact that talking like this is not popular in our day. It is not popular to talk about being saved. That's old-fashioned. That carries with it outdated ideas like hell and God's wrath. And we've moved past that. We've civilized beyond that. We prefer to think in terms of self-actualization and self-esteem. And so the gospel is no longer about salvation. It's about satisfaction. It's about having our spiritual and emotional needs met. It's about reaching our potential, our full potential as human beings. Like any good counterfeit, that is so close to the original. And that's what makes it dangerous. Because God does satisfy us and fill us with good things. He does want to make us the best possible version of ourselves. But that's not all he does. Do you see? It's a dangerous half-truth. And in fact, that's not what he does first. That's not what he considers most urgent and most pressing. First and foremost, he has to save us. And he saves us from the imminent and eternal threat of our sin. From our bondage to our own rebellion. From the prison of this evil age. If we leave that out to focus on the more palatable parts of the gospel, what we have is a counterfeit. And a very dangerous counterfeit. We are saved. We are saved from... That's our first preposition. What are we saved from? What exactly is the problem? What's the danger? I'm sure it's obvious that this is an important question to answer. Because how you define the problem determines your solution. How you diagnose the disease determines your antidote. The threat determines the safety. The danger determines the rescue. For Paul's enemies, the problem for the Galatians was that they were Gentiles. The solution then, because the problem determines the solution, and if the problem is that they are Gentiles, what's the solution? Become Jews. Do you see? For Paul, now that's his enemies, but for Paul, the Galatians had a much deeper problem, a much more urgent and pressing problem. Not that they were Gentiles. It's that they were sinners. And it's the very same problem that the Jews had, which is why becoming Jewish was no solution at all. Going under the Mosaic law does not deal with your sin. At the very best, it exposes your sin. That's the most it can do. That's the most we can hope for. That was the counterfeit in Paul's day. What does our counterfeit look like? Well, I think there are quite a few variations on the same theme. Saved from, remember that's what we're thinking about with this preposition. Saved from, what do we save from? Saved from discomfort. Saved from failure. Saved from pain. Remember, the problem determines the solution. So if that's the problem, what's the solution? What is Jesus saving us from? What's his role? What's his job description? What does salvation look like? If the problem is discomfort, well, then Jesus' job description is to give comfort. 
If the problem is failure, then success. If pain, then pleasure. Jesus' job description is to help us overcome discomfort, failure, and pain. His job is to move us on to comfort, success, and pleasure. Once again, this counterfeit is so powerful. Why? Because it's so very close to the original. Jesus does want to give us life. Life to the full, the good life. The thing is, that as king, he reserves the right to define what the good life is. And the way to get us there. Those are both his jurisdiction. Now imagine if you let your toddler define what the good life is. We know what that will look like. We don't have to imagine for too long. It will be one never-ending sleepless binge of sugar and cocoa milling. Am I right? You can just see them, can't you? You can just see them licking the chocolate off their iPad <laughs> at 3 a.m. in the morning. That's what happens if we let them define the good life. That's why parents must define what the good life is. Come next Tuesday, Rory is going to help us do that. But Jesus has to do the same thing for us. Surely, he must. As the only perfect human being who ever lived, as the word himself, surely he must define what the good life is. And he has come to save us from our alienation with God. That is what is first and foremost and most pressing and most urgent. That is the disease. Everything else is symptomatic. Jesus is not an executive coach or a lifestyle consultant. He's not our therapist. He's not Siri. He's the savior king of the universe. He's come to rescue you from sin. And give you life to the full, which is exactly why he doesn't pander to your vision of success or mine. To my way to get us there or yours. He has his own. And they are better than ours. At its heart, Jesus' vision for success involves loving self-sacrifice for the sake of others. His vision for success is to get you out of yourself into loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. He says, come to me and die so that you might truly live. Jesus is not your PA or your wealth management expert. That is a counterfeit gospel. It's a lie. And it's a dangerous lie because it dresses itself up in the truth. Our first preposition is from. Saved from. We are saved from sin and evil. Not in the first place from discomfort and failure. Second preposition, saved by. Another way to distort the gospel of Christ is to fiddle with what we are saved by. Paul preached to the Galatian churches that they were saved by the grace of God through faith in the Messiah. By grace, through faith. 
the Jewish counter-missionaries said yes. Yes, but. We, we just want to tweak that a little. Just bear with us, Paul. Just a little, a little tweak. We like what you've done, but just a, just a tweak. You are saved by Jesus and by becoming a Jew under the law of Moses. And so this new gospel included faith in the Messiah and salvation by works of the law. Faith in the Messiah and salvation by association, by community. Those same two counterfeits are still very much in circulation today. Salvation by association, by community, and salvation by works. In other words, saved by who I hang around with and saved by what I do. I am saved by being part of church family and church life. I'm saved by doing church stuff. I'm saved by reading my Bible, saying my prayers, giving my tithe, going to church on a Sunday, life group on a Wednesday. Most of my friends are Christian. My uncle is a pastor. I'm saved. Of course I'm saved. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I only miss church when I'm out of the province. If that isn't saved, I don't know what is. I serve my guts out. I care for the needy. I'm available. If anyone needs help, I'm the first one there. If someone is hurting, I'm just a phone call away. You can count on me. If I haven't been saved, well then who has? I go on every single prayer walk. I talk to the lost about Jesus every chance I get. How can you possibly do that if you are not saved? Do you see how dangerous the counterfeit is? It is so easy for us to be socialized into church culture. How quickly we learn the right things to do and the right things to say at the right times to the right people. And they are good things. If we truly are saved, they are the fruit of the gospel. And we love being here. We love being part of it all. It makes us feel so good. But brothers and sisters, none of that, as wonderful and as heartwarming as it is, none of it can save you. None of it. Your life group, as loving as they are, as precious as they are, as necessary as they are, cannot save you. They cannot. Your hours and hours of Bible reading cannot save you. Get a PhD in New Testament studies. It's not going to save you. Your many costly sacrifices to help others, as wonderful as they are, they cannot save you. Only Jesus can. Do you know that not even your faith can save you? Your faith doesn't save you. Jesus does. It's the object of your faith who saves you. You are saved by Jesus through faith in him. See, our prepositions matter again. Saved by Jesus through faith in him. It's not the beggar's bowl that will deal with your hunger. It's the bread in the bowl that deals with the hunger. The bowl doesn't make the bread. The bowl can't earn the bread. The bowl is simply how the bread comes to the beggar. 
Your faith, my faith, is a beggar's bowl. It's merely how the gift of Jesus comes to us. We contribute nothing. We are saved by Jesus. We contribute nothing. And let's be honest, we hate that idea. There's a small corner of our hearts, our souls, just a splinter that rails against that idea with everything we have. We hate that idea because it means that all of our goodness counts for nothing. It's only the goodness of Jesus that counts. And we hate that. We hate that because we lose all control. And we love control. We want to control things so that we can feel worthy. And how often we do feel worthy. But grace says, uh uh-uh. Only Jesus is worthy. You do not only need to repent of your sin, you need to repent of your righteousness. That's what grace says. It's infuriating. But it's true. It's the gospel. And in the end, only the gospel can set us free. Anything else is a dangerous counterfeit. Let me give you a few more examples. We think that we can be saved by our works or by association, by community. Sometimes we think we can be saved by magic. I, uh, I went into a high Anglican church the other day. High Anglican is my bread and butter. That's, that's my meat and drink. I grew up in a high Anglican church, so I'm speaking as an insider. It was like going in there was like a flashback to my childhood. It was so interesting going back because I saw the whole thing with new eyes. Here's the difficult thing about those churches. The gospel is there. It's in the liturgy. It's in the prayer book that the priest has to read. The prayers he has to read and the order of service he has to follow. It's there. The gospel is there. The problem is it's buried. It is buried under all the ritual. It's obscured by all the dresses and the incense. You can't hear it because the bells are ringing so loudly. It is really hard to tell. Even for a pastor whose job it is to know. It was hard for me to tell whether we were saved. In that service, I I wasn't sure whether we were saved by Jesus or by the incense or by the communion or by the priest or by the sprinkling of holy water. I couldn't tell. I came out of there unsure. At best, all that ritual is confusing. It's just confusing. At worst, it's nothing more than pagan magic and superstition. Either way, it's a counterfeit gospel. Another example of tweaking what we are saved by. We are saved by Jesus and all of our other ancestors. Now, many of you here know that by experience. I know it only by talking to you and reading the odd book. So you can come and talk to me about this afterwards. But here's my understanding. Jesus is an important ancestor. He's, he's really important, an important ancestor. He's an an, but he is an ancestor, right? And there are others. And they also need to be kept happy. 
If we want to be free from fear in this spiritually dangerous world, then we need to tend to Jesus and to all of our other ancestors as well. Brothers and sisters, that's a counterfeit gospel. We do need to be delivered from this evil age. Make no mistake about it. The scriptures are clear. But that means that we need Jesus to save us from our sin. And when he does, he also disarms Satan and his legions because the only weapon they have against us in the end is our sin. The scriptures are once again very clear about this. Jesus is the Savior King. His power is uncontested and uncontestable. That power is for you. It is for your protection. But he will not share his throne with anyone else. There's nothing wrong with us remembering our forefathers and respecting our heritage. But do not give your ancestors the honor and obedience that belongs exclusively to your king. The king lives Our ancestors are dead. They cannot save us. And they cannot harm us if we belong to the king. Anything else is a false gospel. There are other false gospels in our secular world. In our wider culture, people believe they will be saved by politics or by economics or by education. Friends, no one has ever been educated out of their sin. No one. At the start of the 20th century, Germany was the most educated nation in the world. What did it get them? Two world wars and a holocaust. All of that blood on their hands. No one is ever educated out of their sin. An expensive education means you just get better at hiding your sin. At justifying it to yourself and others. As for politics and economics, well... You only have to read one history book to know that we've been recycling the same tired old ideas since the beginning of time and we haven't made a single step towards any of the promised utopias. No. We need someone to save us from our sin. The problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. We are saved by Jesus and anything else is a dangerous counterfeit. We are saved for our last preposition. Again, this helps us to recognize the counterfeits. Paul makes it clear that the Galatians are saved for the glory of God. We are not saved for our glory. We will share in his. That's the wonderful news of the gospel. We share in his glory. We are saved for his glory. We are not saved so that we can get rich in this life. We are not saved so that the pastor can get rich in this life. We are not saved so that we have a ticket to heaven and it doesn't matter how we live until we get there. We are not saved for an easy, comfortable life. We are not saved for a successful career. We are not saved to become better parents, ultimately. And Rory won't mind me saying that he would say it himself. We are saved for the glory of God. His kindness, His mercy, His justice, His compassion, His beauty, His power, His goodness put on display for all the world to see when He saves us. That's what we are saved for. 
And in the magnificence of the God of wow, we sang about it this morning, his glory is also our greatest good. His glory is our greatest good. It is riches and happiness beyond our wildest imaginings. Basking in the glory of God. Finally having arrived at home. Finally we've come home. We're in his presence. Living forever in the bounty, the prosperity, the abundance, the overflowing glory and goodness of his kingdom. Eating at the king's table every single day. Forever. That's worth being saved for. I hope you agree that is so much more than my little dreams. My narrow ambitions. My little bubble of self-interest. That he must take care of for me. We are saved. We are saved from sin and this evil age. We are saved by King Jesus. We are saved for his glory. Anything else is a counterfeit and we want to stay away from counterfeits. We want to do everything in our power to avoid counterfeits because with counterfeits come the curse. And we close with this. Look at verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so we now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That is strong language. Paul is no postmodern servant of tolerance. There is one gospel. If anyone preaches anything else, let him be accursed. That word has Old Testament connotations of being devoted to destruction. It means to come under the full, unbridled wrath of God. Paul is damning the preacher of the false gospel to hell. He's not playing around. We understand now why he is so outraged and so deeply frustrated with the Galatians because the stakes are so very high. He's not playing around. And neither should we. Brothers and sisters, if you flirt with a counterfeit gospel, you are flirting with hell. That's the message of Paul. He makes it so plain. There is one gospel. Anything else is a counterfeit. And let those who peddle counterfeits come under the curse of God. Because that's what they are risking for their hearers. If you are not saved by Jesus, the curse is all that's left. So we need to be so very careful about what we listen to on TBN or on Dumisa or what we watch on the internet. What are we watching on the internet? What are we hearing on Dumisa? You need to be so very careful about what you hear from this pulpit. Did you notice Paul puts himself under the curse? Verse 8. If we preach another gospel, let us be accursed. You see? You need to be guardians and custodians of what you hear from this pulpit. Those who are going to Christchurch Nakupila 
you have the same duty, the same burden, the same responsibility. You need to evaluate everything you hear by the grammar of the gospel, the one true gospel. What is it? By now we can probably say it together. We are saved. We are saved from sin and this evil age. We are saved by King Jesus. We are saved for the glory of God. Let's pray to him together now. Father, we thank you for King Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to your will and for your eternal glory. Father, please bless this gospel and only this gospel in our midst. Please help us to pass it on faithfully to the next generation. Please protect us from all the counterfeits that are all around us, that appeal to us so strongly because of the sin in our hearts. We pray for ourselves. We pray especially for Christ Church Nokopila this morning. Father, preserve the gospel. Protect the gospel. Prosper the gospel in and through this new gathering of God's people. Let the gospel show itself once again. Once again. For 2,000 years and once again to be the power of God for salvation through the local church. We pray these things for your glory, which we also know in your goodness is our supreme good. Amen.